have your Bibles tonight, you can turn to Genesis chapter 46. After tonight, we only have one more sermon from Genesis. We'll close it out next week with the scene we find there. But tonight, after the reunion with his brothers, um, Joseph had invited his father Jacob and all his family to come to Egypt so that they would survive the you know, last five years of this great famine. Jacob's heart had literally stopped when he heard that Joseph was still alive for 22 years. He thought his precious son Joseph was um, dead and gone, and now he has the chance to see him again before he dies in 4528. Now, we don't really realize how hasty, and it's, it's not a, a critique, but it's, we don't realize how hasty of a decision this was. Jacob is over a hundred years old. What is he doing heading all the way down to Egypt with his entire family and everything they have in tow? That's no easy thing to do. You have at least 70 people, men, women, little children, as well as their flocks and herds. They're all going. And then there's the question, of course, would Pharaoh actually allow them to stay in the middle of a famine? Or would he... Um, send them right back. Like, you you can't stay here. You can't be here. And if he did let them stay, where would they end up? In the city, in the desert with other nomads, maybe in good pasture land for all their flocks. But we can't say for sure. They couldn't say for sure. And if, if um, there's a lot to consider in the idea of Jacob and his entire family going down to Egypt. But on top of all that, Jacob was leaving the land that God had promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob himself. When Jacob's father Isaac had wanted to escape a famine by going to Egypt in chapter 26, God stopped him on the way, remember, and said to him, Do not go down to Egypt. Settle in the land that I will show you. Reside in this land, which was Philistine land, I believe, at the time, as an alien, and I will be with you and will bless you, for to you and to your descendants I will give all these lands, and I will fulfill the oath that I swore to your father Abraham. I will make your offspring as numerous as the stars of heaven. Do not go down to Egypt, God had said to Jacob's father. But now Jacob and his whole family are on the way to Egypt. Is he giving up on the promise? Is he giving up on the land that God had promised to his father, um, to all of them? Jacob is on this journey, uh, but now he's not so sure. And that's where we pick up the story tonight in Genesis 46. On the move again, sojourning in this world, wondering if God will be with him. God's children, the seed of the woman, have had no home since Eden. But God had made a promise to Israel, which is why he did go down to Egypt with Jacob. To make sure they knew that unlike all the other gods... In these regions, these nations who were confined, only applicable to the borders of their own localities, localities, the Almighty God would be with them wherever they went. For Israel, that meant whether they were in slavery or in Canaan or in exile in Babylon, God is mobile. And beloved, He walks with us tonight because of His promise. In Jesus Christ, God is present with us today, wherever we go. So let's pray. Father, for your name's sake, for your word, for its truth in our hearts, for your Son and his glory, would you be with me? Would you completely overshadow me and consume me with your spirit that I might preach your word in these next moments and not my own? Father, please 
I need a miracle of your power or that will not happen. So, Lord, I ask that's what you would do, that by your spirit you would illuminate everyone's heart, enable them to hear and understand and believe. And, Father, watch over us as we read and study your word together, we ask in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Verse 1 of chapter 46. So Israel took his journey with all that he had and came to Beersheba and offered sacrifices to the God of his father, Isaac. We mentioned it briefly, but years before, when Jacob's father Isaac was at Beersheba, which is on the southern border of Canaan in Genesis 26, God had appeared to him at night also, telling him not to be afraid, for God would bless him and multiply his offspring for Abraham's sake. Isaac had built an altar there. Well, Jacob had stopped here at the border of the promised land also, unsure of what he's about to do, which is why he offers up sacrifices to the God of his father, Isaac. And that night, God appeared to Jacob, which, beloved, this is the only time in the whole story of Joseph that God speaks in a night vision. And it isn't to Joseph at all, who's been the main character this whole time. It's to his father, Jacob, the one given the promise, of course. Beloved, this is very late in the story for God to show up. It's very late in the story. For a word from the Lord. It didn't happen until now. Remember this. For 22 years, Jacob thought Joseph was dead. Why didn't God appear to Jacob? Think about this for a minute. All the way back at the beginning to assure him that everything was all right. Joseph is still alive. There's a plan. Everything's going to be okay. But he doesn't do that. Why hadn't God done anything like that for Joseph? Imagine the anguish and sorrow that could have been avoided for this family, all the difficulty and confusion that could have been, el- been eliminated. These were his special people, remember. Verse 2. And God spoke to Israel in visions of the night and said, Jacob, Jacob. And he said, here I am. Then he said, I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt. For there I will make you into a great nation. I myself will go down with you to Egypt, and I will also bring you up again. And Joseph's hand shall close your eyes. God knows Jacob's fears. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, because he was afraid. Jacob is wondering what will happen to God's promises if he makes this trip. God had promised several times that He would make the patriarchs into a great nation, but this is the first time he announces or makes it clear that he'll bring this about well outside the borders of the promised land, all the way down in Egypt. It's pagan Egypt that will become the cradle of this great nation. God will form his people in the secluded Egyptian land of Goshen, not in Canaan. Now we know, of course, that Israel will eventually be enslaved in Egypt, but that doesn't mean God is abandoning his plan or his promise. Just as God sent Joseph to Egypt as a slave to save Israel and the surrounding nations from a famine in 45.5, so he will bring Israel itself to Egypt where they will be enslaved but grow into a nation nonetheless. And then God will lead them out of Egypt to the promised land and they will eventually give birth to the Messiah who will save the world. And how will God accomplish this? Verse 4, again, I myself will go down with you to Egypt. And I will also bring you up again, and Joseph's hand shall close your eyes. Now, we we want to try to be able to hear that with the same welcome surprise that Jacob would have. 
right? Leaving the promised land. People in this time believed in local gods that only had, you know, jurisdiction in their own territories or in their own countries. Outside of those places, they were powerless. But Israel's God is the sovereign God who controls the whole world. He, he went with Abraham and Sarah from Haran to Mesopotamia to Canaan. He went with Jacob from Canaan to his uncle in Haran back to Canaan again. Apparently, borders do not apply to this God. And God also promises that he will bring Jacob up again. That doesn't pertain really to just his corpse being brought back to the promised land in chapter 50. It refers to the return of his descendants. Ancient Israel thought um, of their ancestors and their nation as one and the same. Both had the same destiny. What God is promising here is the exodus from slavery for the entire nation. And to the original audience who first read Genesis, you have to remember we're talking about generations of time before that happens, but for the reader, that's only a few pages away, right? Just a few pages away. And finally, God promises Jacob that Joseph's hand will close his eyes. Jacob will see Joseph again, and even though it was normally the oldest son or the nearest relative that would gently close the eyes of the deceased in this culture, his beloved son Joseph will be the one to perform this rite for Jacob. So Jacob now has God's word that he will be with him. We pick it up in verse 5. Then Jacob set out from Beersheba. The sons of Israel carried Jacob their father, their little ones and their wives, in the wagons that Pharaoh had sent to carry him. They also took their livestock and their goods, which they had gained in the land of Canaan, and came into Egypt, Jacob and all his offspring with him, his sons and his sons' sons with him, his daughters and his sons' daughters, all his offspring he brought with him into Egypt. The emphasis in this passage is that Jacob took everyone. All his offspring he brought with him to Egypt. In other words, keep this in mind, not one descendant of Abraham remains now in the promised land. Not one. It's vacated entirely. No one's left behind to hold down the fort. Nothing like that. The author wants to underscore this point, which is why I think... We see this genealogy right in the middle of this narrative, which feels like it just completely slows it down here in verses 8 through 26. But the list, which I'm not going to read in its entirety, does something very deliberate. It highlights the number seven and its multiples here. That's, that's no accident in the Bible. In verse 22, for example, we read that these are the sons of Rachel who were born to Jacob, 14 persons in all. 14 is two times seven. Rachel's maid, Bilhah, has half that number of children. In verse 25, these are the sons of Bilhah, whom Laban gave to Rachel, his daughter, and these she bore to Jacob, seven persons in all. We read in verse 15 that Leah had 33 children and grandchildren, while her maid Zilpah, in verse 18, had 16. That's 49, which, of course, is seven times seven. But the most important multiple of seven comes... In verse 27, let's look there. And the sons of Joseph who were born to him in Egypt were two. So they're set apart. All the persons of the house of Jacob who came into Egypt were 70. 70 is 10 times 7. There's a theological function of this genealogy that's being revealed in the use of these numbers. 10 in God's word is the number of fullness. Seven in God's word is the number of perfection. Seventy is the full, complete number of God's people. Now, think about that for a minute. Seventy 
people. We had more than that here this morning. 70 people. Out of the whole world, that's God's people. What a tiny little flock in the world. The promise is so big and it's so cosmic. It's shaping and driving all human history. And yet it's focused right now in Genesis 46 is 70 people sojourning from Canaan to Egypt. How does God keep a handle on all this? What can 70 people do? How is God even aware of such small things? Beloved, it always depends on where the promise is. Always. In Genesis 10, 70 nations represented all the descendants of Adam. Now, in Genesis 46, 70 sons represent all the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Do you see what the Bible is doing? The promise is beginning to zoom in on a certain group of people, isn't it? That's It's narrowing its focus. All of God's people, all of them, move down to Egypt. No one's left behind in the promised land. Picking the story back up in verse 28, Jacob had sent Judah ahead of the company to lead the way before them into Goshen. When they arrive, Joseph gets his chariot ready, goes to meet his father in, Joseph, in, in Goshen. And we read this beautiful text in the middle of verse 29. He presented himself to him, Joseph to his father, fell on his neck and wept on his neck a good while. Israel said to Joseph, now let me die since I have seen your face and know that you are still Alive. After a 22 year separation, now the father and his son are reunited. It almost reminds us of Simeon, doesn't it? In Luke 2 29 and 30, as he held the little Messiah in his arms, you remember what he said? Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace, for my eyes have seen your salvation. Jacob can go to his grave now without any unanswered questions about his beloved boy. Joseph, but a question does remain for us, for the reader, for the family in the story. How will Pharaoh welcome such a large group of refugees? Of course, in the expanse of the whole world, the fact that God's people are only 70 is a very small number. But if you're in the middle of a famine and you've got a group of 70 coming in, how will Pharaoh welcome them? And will he truly allow them to settle in the best of the land? Well, Joseph has a plan. And he tells it to the group in verse 31. Joseph said to his brothers and to his father's household, I will go up and tell Pharaoh and will say to him, my brothers and my father's household who were in the land of Canaan have come to me. And the men are shepherds for they have been keepers of livestock and they have brought their flocks and their herds and all that they have. When Pharaoh calls you and says, what is your occupation? You shall say, your servants have been keepers of livestock from our youth even until now, both we and our fathers, in order that you may dwell in the land of Goshen, for every shepherd is an abomination to the Egyptians. Honestly, it's, it's, it's very hard to say why. It just, it isn't clear. It's said here, so it's true, but we don't really, it, it maybe it had something to do with uh, how they treated their livestock differently, what they used their livestock for, but the fact of the matter is, what's being highlighted here, there's a gap a cultural gap between Egyptians and Hebrews. And we don't know, again, how Pharaoh will react now that everyone's actually here. We know that he was excited for Joseph before, but now the rubber meets the road. Joseph wants his family to settle on the northeastern border of Egypt and the land of Goshen. It's on the frontier of Egypt, so the family could stay relatively isolated from the Egyptians and not mingle with them. But Goshen also had ideal grazing land without being too far from Canaan, right? So Joseph 
His plan is to emphasize that they're keepers of livestock, they're shepherds who have brought their herds with them, hoping that when Pharaoh hears that, he'll catch on. He'll say, I suggest Goshen, since Egyptians um, despise shepherds and won't want them close. The brother's job there to tell Pharaoh, look, we, we've been herdsmen all our lives. Joseph picks five of them to present to Pharaoh, and we pick it up in verse 1 of chapter 47. So Joseph went in and told Pharaoh, My father and my brothers with their flocks and herds and all that they possess have come from the land of Canaan. They are now in the land of Goshen. And from among his brothers he took five men and presented them to Pharaoh. Pharaoh said to his brothers, What is your occupation? Just like Joseph said he would ask. And they said to Pharaoh, Your servants are shepherds as our fathers were. They said to Pharaoh, We have come to sojourn in the land, for there is no pasture for your servants' flocks, for the famine is severe in the land of Canaan. But then, which again, I, it's odd to me, it could be a translation issue, is, you know, don't tell them that you're shepherds and then that's what they say. So they're saying keepers of livestock, but there might be some difficulty here. But here, the brothers go beyond. What they're about to say next is not part of the plan. Okay, They weren't supposed to say this. And now please let your servants dwell in the land of Goshen. Joseph meant for that to be Pharaoh's idea. So what will Pharaoh say? This is the Pharaoh now. What will he say to this very forward, non-customary type of request? Will he get angry? Will he send them right back to Canaan? Will he make them slaves for being insolent? Foreign leaders were very capricious. No, the Lord is with them. So Pharaoh not only obliges, he does them one better. Look at verse 5. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, your father and your brothers have come to you. The land of Egypt is before you. Settle your father and your brothers in the best of the land. Let them settle in the land of Goshen. And if you know any able men among them, put them in charge of my livestock. Not only can they in fact settle in Goshen as Joseph had hoped, but they, like Joseph has been, are going to be put in charge of the royal herds now. This Pharaoh had massive amounts of livestock, by the way. Ramses III is said to have employed 3,264 men, mostly foreigners, just to care for his livestock. That's a lot of guys for what it would be a ton of livestock. You don't just put one guy on one cow. This is a massive amount of livestock. So these brothers are now officers of the crown. They're going to enjoy legal protection that most foreigners in Egypt never would have received. What are we finding? As the Lord had been with Joseph in Potiphar's house, in prison, in Pharaoh's court, now he is clearly with Jacob and his family as they arrive in Egypt. And now, of course, Joseph presents his father to Pharaoh in verse 7. Then Joseph brought in Jacob, his father, and stood him before Pharaoh and Jacob blessed Pharaoh. Instead of doing what is customary, bowing deeply before the great ruler of Egypt, Jacob probably raises his hands and blesses Pharaoh for his kindness to him and to his family. The same Jacob who had cheated and lied to obtain the blessing from his father and 27, 18 through 29, generously gives God's blessing to Pharaoh. It's mentioned twice, by the way. It's mentioned again in verse 10 to show us how important it is. Beloved, a promise was made to Abraham that God would bless those who blessed his offspring. Well, here it is. In Joseph and now Jacob, 
This promise is being fulfilled, isn't it? Verse 8. And Pharaoh said to Jacob, how many are the days of the years of your life? Beloved, listen to verse 9. And Jacob said to Pharaoh, the days of the years of my sojourning are 130 years. Few and evil have been the days of the years of my life. And they have not attained to the days of the years of the life of my fathers in the days of their sojourning. It was a very simple question. How old are you? We expect a simple answer, just a number. Jacob, however, diverts attention from the length of his years to the manner of his years. Isn't that strange? Sojourn is the word that describes Abraham and his offspring and their place in this world. It means a road life. It means a mobile one. Never settled. The renunciation of ownership and stability for a life instead that's constantly oriented toward a future fulfillment. A promise of a homeland that was renewed time and time again to the patriarchs in Genesis. But it was expected that God would be the one to give them their home. And Jacob's sojourn towards that home had been evil or hard. It's probably better translated. He had cheated his brother Esau. Deceived his father Isaac. As a result, he has to flee for his life to Mesopotamia where he will be deceived by his uncle Laban. When he finally came back to Canaan, his only daughter Dinah is raped. Then his own sons deceived him into thinking his beloved son had been torn apart by wild animals. Then came a famine. Then came the imprisonment of Simeon in Egypt. Then came his fear and anxiety over Benjamin's life. It didn't matter how few the days of Jacob's sojourn were, they were hard. But he had a promise. God had come down with him to Egypt and eventually will return his sojourning family to that promised land. Verse 11, Then Joseph settled his father and his brothers and gave them a possession in the land of Egypt, in the best of the land, in the land of Ramses, as Pharaoh had commanded. And Joseph provided his father, his brothers, and all his father's household with food according to the number of their dependents. So they weren't just going to sojourn in Goshen. They would have a possession. They'd have a holding of Pharaoh's best land. God is simply beginning to confirm the promise he made to Jacob in 46.3. He's going to do what is necessary to make a great nation out of Jacob in Egypt. The sojourners now have property where they can settle down, multiply, become a great nation of their own. Remember, they never had this before. And in addition to all that, in verse 12, Joseph provides the whole family with enough to eat throughout the famine. Not one of God's people will die of starvation during the famine. Not one, even though the famine is getting worse. Look at verse 13. Now there was no food in all the land, so the grain is run out. For the famine was very severe, so that the land of Egypt and the land of Canaan languished by reason of the famine. So, by the way then, we now know if Israel had remained in Canaan, they would have all died. But now even in Egypt, things are becoming desperate. So Joseph has to take some severe measures here, which is very severe, to save even the Egyptians. We'll pick it up in verse 14. And Joseph gathered up all the money that was found in the land of Egypt and in the land of Canaan in exchange for the grain that they bought. And Joseph brought the money into Pharaoh's house. 
And when the money was all spent in the land of Egypt and in the land of Canaan, all the Egyptians came to Joseph and said, Give us food. Why should we die before your eyes? For our money is gone. And Joseph answered, Give your livestock, and I will give you food in exchange for your livestock if your money is gone. So they brought their livestock to Joseph, and Joseph gave them food in exchange for the horses, the flocks, the herds, and the donkeys. He supplied them with food in exchange for all their livestock that year. And when that year was ended, they came to him the following year and said to him, We will not hide from my Lord that our money is all spent. The herds of livestock are my Lord's. There is nothing left in the sight of my Lord but our bodies and our land. Why should we die before your eyes, both we and our land? Buy us and our land for food, and we with our land will be servants to Pharaoh. And give us seed that we may live and not die, and that the land may not be desolate. So Joseph bought all the land of Egypt for Pharaoh. For all the Egyptians sold their fields because the famine was severe on them. The land became Pharaoh's. It'll be huge later on in the story of Israel. As for the people, he made servants of them from one end of Egypt to the other. Now, very quickly, we might be tempted to think Joseph is exploiting the poor here. That is not what's happening. In the ancient world, first of all, it was normal that people pay their own way as long as they had something to offer, even up to their freedom, if that's what it would have taken to survive. The world was very different then. Israelite law will even go on to reflect this in a slightly modified way with the right of redemption in Leviticus 25. But what essentially happened here is that the Egyptians became tenant farmers on land that now belonged to Pharaoh. They gave up all that they had. Verse 23. Then Joseph said to the people, Behold, I have this day bought you and your land for Pharaoh. Now here is seed for you, and you shall sow the land. And at the harvest you shall give a fifth to Pharaoh, and four-fifths shall be your own, as seed for the field, and as food for yourselves and your households, and as food for your little ones. So, since they're now tenant farmers, he allotted them seeds for planting their fields, which means must mean we're getting close to the end of the famine, Right? Under this agreement, they paid 20% of their crop to Pharaoh. And we have um, text from the Middle East information that the rate for tenants was usually a lot higher, sometimes even 40%. So Joseph is being much more gracious than normal in these situations to the people of Egypt. But the rest of their crops, the remaining 80%, would be theirs for seed and for food. The people are thrilled, it looks like, with this arrangement in verse 25. And they said, you have saved our lives May it please my Lord, we will be servants to Pharaoh. Joseph has said to his brothers that God's providence led him there to save many people and preserve life. We find that even through extreme measures like this, that this includes God's mercy on the Egyptians themselves, on the people who enslaved him. All through Joseph's story, we've heard about Joseph saving lives, right? In chapter 42, Jacob told his sons to go down to Egypt to buy grain so that they may live and not die. Judah argues with his father to return to Egypt to get Benjamin so they may live and not die. <clears throat> in 43.8, Joseph tells his brothers in 45.5 that God sent me before you to preserve life. That theme continues here. The Egyptians now come to Joseph for seed in verse 19, that we may live and not die. So this theme of saving lives by God's servant, expands outwardly to cover even those who are on the outside of God's people. Beloved, God is fulfilling His promise 
to Abraham. I will bless those who bless you, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Genesis 12:3. Even before Jesus came to gather in the sheep who were not of the fold of Israel, even all the way back in the beginning, it was clear that God also cared for and loved all the nations that he had made. All of them. This is just the book of Genesis. This is only the beginning of the story and of the promise. Because <clears throat> it doesn't just address past promises. It also looks to the future. By keeping Israel alive, God is using Joseph to keep alive the nation that will give birth to the Messiah. <clears throat> Who will be the savior of the whole world? The saving work of Joseph prefigures the saving work of Jesus. As Joseph provides for starving people, Jesus provides eternal food for dying people. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never be hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. This is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. This indeed is the will of my Father, always has been, that all who see the Son and believe in Him may have eternal life, and I will raise Him up on the last day. John six thirty-five to 40 As Joseph granted a possession, a holding, to Israel in Egypt, so Jesus grants a holding to God's people in God's kingdom. Speaking of the final judgment, Jesus says, Come, you that are blessed, By my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Matthew 25, 34. The Apostle Peter couldn't hardly handle how great this news was when he wrote his first letter to the elect exiles. Remember, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. By his great mercy, he has given us a new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. First Peter 1, 3 through 5. So the author now sums up Israel's stay in Egypt in verse 27 in terms that deliberately remind us and make us look back to Eden and to the original promise. Look at verse 27. Thus Israel settled in the land of Egypt and the land of Goshen, and they gained possessions in it, And were fruitful and multiplied greatly. God is fulfilling his promises of a multitude of descendants to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And in so doing a seed that will end the curse. That promise is still standing. Genesis sets the pattern for all of scripture. Just by being the record for our hope of the fact that God makes the plan And keeps the promise. Now, I want us to notice something that happens with Jacob. 17 years later, in verse 28, that is crucial. Pick it up with me there. And Jacob lived in the land of Egypt 17 years. So the days of Jacob, the years of his life, were 147 years. And when the time drew near that Israel must die, he called his son Joseph and said to him, If now... I have found favor in your sight. Put your hand under my thigh and promise to deal kindly and truly with me. Do not bury me in Egypt, but let me lie with my fathers. Carry me out of Egypt and bury me in their burying place, he answered. Or he answered, Joseph did, I will do as you have said. And he said, swear to me. 
And he swore to him. Then Israel bowed himself upon the head of his bed or his staff. His burial in the promised land, not Egypt, is so important to Jacob that he won't simply take Joseph's word for it. They do the customary swearing, swear an oath in verse 31. That brings us back to the vision of 46, 1 to 4, and the word of the Lord there to Jacob. In fact, it takes us back to the promise at the beginning and how we live in the land of our sojourn. Back in chapter 46, Jacob didn't really want to leave the land. He wasn't sure out of fear that doing so would jeopardize the promise. He, he didn't want to leave until he had God's blessing on the trip. But now at the end of chapter 47, all Jacob can think about is getting back to the land that God promised him. And he wants to embody his commitment to the land in his death. Jacob knows he's a child of promise. And as Walter Brueggemann said, he will not be seduced into staying in Egypt. He will be in Egypt, but he will not be of it. Right? Even Goshen, with all of its blessings, is not his home. And he wanted his family to remember that Goshen is not Israel's home, and it never could be. It might provide a resting place, absolutely. It might have possessions and grain and holdings, but it's not the end of the story. It was not the goal. It is not home. Yes, the family is called to sojourn, or the family that's called to sojourn through this world finally possesses something, don't they? They can stay put. They'll be fine. But the holding is in this world. And these are sojourners. And Jacob is a reminder to his sons here on purpose about the lure of the ease and stability of Egypt. Maybe, you know, maybe I could have benefited more from the gifts of Egypt, sons, but only if I abandon the promise and I won't do it. My body doesn't belong here. Take me back home. Bury me with my fathers. When I die, take my body back to where it belongs. God had not only promised to go down to Egypt with Israel, but also to bring them up again. Which means he's not only with them in the present, God is with them in the future by virtue of his word. He was with them in Egypt. He would be with them centuries later when they finally return to Canaan. 430 years to be exact. Jacob believed that. He believed that. Victor Hamilton says that Egypt is to Jacob and his family what the ark was to Noah. A temporary shelter from the disaster on the outside. Even if represented only by his decayed remains, he wants to be a part of that redemptive act of God. So the theme of this story is the presence of God with his people wherever they go. God was present with Israel when they went down to Egypt, he was present when he brought them up again. And he was present for 430 years in between, even when they became slaves. And beloved, because of his promise in Jesus Christ, God is present with us today, wherever we go. Jesus sent out his disciples to all nations in Matthew 28, didn't he? 
the word would go to all nations. His word of promise was to cover the whole earth, was to go to Egypt where the sun god Ra was supreme, to Greece where Zeus was supreme, to Rome where Apollos was supreme, to America where America is supreme and is promised to them as they covered the earth. Remember, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. It doesn't change. The promise doesn't change. The one to whom has been given all authority in heaven and on earth is with us wherever we go, beloved. But that doesn't mean we will always prosper. Right? Jacob didn't always prosper. Few and hard were the days of his sojourn, and then he died. And God's presence with Israel didn't prevent their affliction under a Pharaoh that didn't know Joseph. Israel was enslaved. God's people were forced to drown their baby boys in the Nile River. Eventually, apparently, homeless nomads will not be welcomed in this world. It doesn't matter what advantages their presence might bring. And the fact that Jesus promised his disciples, even the ones at the end of the age, maybe that's us, that he would be with them, did not mean they are spared from hardship or suffering. Stephen was stoned to death. James was thrown off the top of the temple, and he didn't die, so they clubbed him to death. Peter was most likely hung upside down, crucified upside down. Paul suffered beatings, imprisonments, stoning, beheading. So we have to ask, right, if we want to get honest, what good is his promise to be with us wherever we go, if it means wherever we go we'll still suffer and hurt? How do we benefit from God's abiding presence? How do we know it's there? I mentioned at the beginning how late it was in the story for a vision from God. Right? It, it, it didn't happen for 22 years. Again, this is God. At any moment, as he had done numerous times, he can show up in a dream, in a vision, as three visitors, and just say, hey, this is what's actually going on. Right? And he didn't do it. All that time, Jacob thought Joseph was dead. Why didn't God appear to him all the way back at the beginning to assure him that everything was all right? Again, this is his family in the world. These are his people. Isn't, shouldn't he be doing that? You think that's, that's precisely what it means to be his people. You'll always get this theophany, this appearing of God, so that you know precisely what's going on. Just assure them that everything's all right. That, that, trust me, I have a plan. I'm working it out. It's going to go down like this. There was no word for Joseph either that we see recorded in Scripture. That would have been helpful. Again, it just would have cleared up so much anguish and sorrow and difficulty and confusion if they would have known the whole time that God was working something out. But, beloved, they did know that. They did know that. God never recanted the original 
promise. Not ever. He never rescinded it. It was still there on this family. Here's the thing to realize tonight. By God's reckoning, that promise is good enough. That promise is good enough. The presence of God with us wherever we go is written in stone, in blood, to be precise. That promise has been made. It stands. The word of God stands. It cannot be broken. It's the truth tonight. We are not going to get wonderful revelations of clarity at every step of our journey in the land of our sojourn either. We're not going to get a steady diet of theophanies whenever things get tough so that we know everything's okay, but not because God doesn't see or doesn't care, but because God has already told you and I that He will be with us wherever we go. He's already said it. And sojourners walk by faith, not by sight. God is not going to give us a dream for every question, a vision for every situation or circumstance, a direct answer for every cloudy road forward. Most of the time, if not all of the time now, it's just one foot in front of the other until our feet step into the Jordan and we cross over. Don't doubt His Word. Listen to it. Memorize it. Learn it. Keep it right here. Close to you in the dark. Right here. Right here. This is why Paul is such a gift. Isn't it amazing how relevant, how Paul is so relevant to Genesis? How, how often we go to this text I'm about to read from when the theme of Genesis is the God who makes and keeps His promises. All of Paul's theology in the New Testament flows out of that fact of who God is. God is a promise maker and a promise keeper. That's all Paul is really talking about. Paul endured more than we can imagine, and that's what we know about. Right? Maybe he went through things he didn't even write about. Well, what held him up? Well, first in Romans 8, 28 through 30, he said, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. Again, that's not spiritual Prozac. That's not a, that's not a pill to, to, you know, force down just to feel better when things are hard. It's speaking of God's providence. That, that, that is God reminding us of what has always been true and clear through his word. I'm, don't worry. I'm working everything out. Right? It looks like chaos from the ground. Right? If, if, if you go up and look down, you'll see clearly. Right? It, it's, again, it's, if, if you, um, if you DVR a football game and you know the result, it is a whole different experience when you watch it, the recording. It's a whole, you love to watch the other team celebrate when they do good because you know they're going to lose. They're going to get theirs at the end. It's amazing what that type of insight gives you during the game. It's, it's, it's much like that. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to His purpose. We know His purpose as we read Scripture, which is to keep His promise. All things work together for good for those who are called according to the fact that God wants to keep His promises. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined. 
to be conformed to the image of His Son, in order that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom He predestined, He also called. And those whom He called, He also justified. And those whom He justified, He also glorified. All past tense verbs, all finished. That was true of you before you were born, believer. All of it. Beloved, that means our salvation is certain. Certain. Doesn't matter where we are. Doesn't matter what we're going through. It's certain. That's the promise you and I have in all of our circumstances. Child, you are mine. Your salvation is certain. Think of these words as a chain wrapped around your soul. And nothing can break this chain because the links are the actions of God, not you and me. Foreknew, predestined, called, justified, glorified. God is doing all of that. Everybody gets nervous when they see the word predestined, predestination. Here's the thing. If you remove one link from the chain in Romans 8, the whole thing falls apart. No one that was foreknown by God will not be glorified. That's what Romans 8 means. To be foreknown known before you were, which in the Bible, knew, know, is way different than aware of, right? It's intimate, it accomplishes, it produces something foreknew. If you're foreknown in Romans 8, you're also glorified. There are no exceptions. There's no such thing as a believer that gets justified and then falls away so that they're not glorified. No. No. To be foreknown is to also be glorified. Both are Certain. You see, both ends of the spectrum for you in His promise. You see, God has been watching over your steps from before you took any of them. You are His. You are His from before you existed until you die, beloved, and then you're His also. He's with us in it all. No matter what we go through in this life, we will be glorified. God said that already. You have that when you are at the end of your rope. You have that now. It would be wonderful if God showed up all the time. I'm not questioning that for a second. Right? But He doesn't. He he certainly can. Don't hear me say that. God can do whatever He wants. But it seems that the pattern is to act as though the promise is enough. Suffering in this life does not mean God is not present with us. It doesn't mean he's forgotten anything. Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword separate us from his love? No. The answer is no. In all these things, not in spite of them. In them, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Romans 8, 35 to 39. You've probably seen this if you've walked with the Lord for a long amount of time. You've probably maybe seen somebody pass in peace. Not everybody passes in peace. Most people don't. 
But maybe some of us have been given the tremendous privilege of watching somebody gently close their eyes, realizing that what's about to happen will not, will also not separate them from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Not even death can sever that. Beloved, in the land of our sojourn today, it's not Egypt, it's not Israel, but He has no borders. He's with us. He goes wherever we go. Where could we flee from His presence? How can you get away from Him? We could make our home on Pluto. He'd be there. Right? He's already there. God knows it's still a planet. Right? doesn't matter what... Maybe the promise is better than a vision. Maybe the promise is better than a vision. Maybe since He reveals Himself as a God of promise... The promise is better than Him showing up every time it gets tough to reassure us of it. Notice in the span of the Bible then what must be the finality of Jesus coming. As I'm aware of it, there are no more of these visions. Right? When Jesus came, that's God's final word. I've spoken everything you need to know. My Son has said, Hebrews 1 one to four. He's with us. See, his word doesn't need that much help, I think, is what we're meant to learn. Beloved, it doesn't require. Right? It, marriage requires, normally, constant reiteration. Not because one or the other is more needy. I mean, that's, that's not my point. My point is, normally, most of us are doing things to our spouses that make us have to come back later and say, look, I'm sorry, I still love you, I still want to be with you, you know, I, I, what I said was horrible, something like that, right? So you, you're constantly reiterating these things. Jesus isn't a husband like that, right? The, 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 all the places are set at the reception. This is happening. This is happening. His word stands. It's sufficient. It's good. It's good. Yes, it would have been nice for God to let Jacob know what was going on. Right? And I don't mean that disrespectfully to God. That's not what I'm saying. Just, of course, it would have been nice to know it 22 years prior. Everything's okay. Everything's okay. What I'm saying, what I think the text wants us to know, at least in part, is that God's promise means everything's going to be all right. He's reiterating in 46. He's not making a new promise, is he? He's reiterating. He's letting him know, you're moving, I'm not. I'll be with you wherever you go. Don't think that your move to Egypt is going to change my plan. It's not. It would have been nice to know what was going on all the time, but the one who knows all things, right, has no evil or malice in him, no bitterness within him, the one that can make no error or mistake, the one that cannot sin or do evil, chose not to appear until the 22 years was over. He is right. Beloved, that was the best decision. We don't understand that. We may not accept that. I'm not saying we do. From earth, it's like, how is that, not, how is that more helpful? The promise is sufficient. He chose not to appear in person until it was all over. Oh, that sounds familiar, beloved. You and I await the same thing.
Genesis 46 is telling you he will be there at our end too, as we're about to cross over or wherever we go. When you cannot see his hand, when you do not hear a voice, trust the promise. It's always there. It's always there. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. Nothing can separate my love from you or separate you from my love. All your sins are forgiven. You are justified freely by my grace. Those words are always there. I will give you eternal life. I will come for you. I will receive you unto myself. Where I am, there you may be also. You write those on your heart. Every single one of them is true. Our new hearts are sojourning hearts. They're restless, beloved. And what awaits us in the future that we know is coming, that will be so great, that we don't have yet, what we struggle with in our sinfulness, what we see in the world, will all prevent us from ever settling and feeling at home here. Not even Goshen will work. Right? A holding and a possession don't change everything. They don't answer the eternity in my heart begging for something solid. They don't answer that. We go to Ecclesiastes next after Genesis, it seems like. And beloved, that, that's the search. Why, why won't anything fill this void? Not even Goshen will fill the void. Not even America will fill the void. And again, on earth, this is as good as it gets. This nation is amazing. This is as good as it gets here. And I'm not knocking it. I'm never doing that. I'm saying it won't work though. So trust the promise and rest in Christ. He is your country. Your citizenship is in heaven and he will return for you. All right. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word and for your promise. Lord, may we believe it. May your people, may we all believe it and find our life and hope and joy in it. We ask and pray this in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.